Well, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Chris. If you don't know me, I'm one of the uh, part of the leadership team at Freedom Church, and I've got the pleasure this morning of diving back into our series on 1 Corinthians, which we've been doing for quite a while with some breaks along the way, because it is a long book. There's a heck of a lot of good stuff in there, and at little little points, we've just taken pauses along the way, but we're diving back in really to the, the close of the story uh, this week. Uh, just to, to remind ourselves, why did we choose to look at 1 Corinthians? If you remember, Corinth, the city, we saw as a place actually you could liken to Liverpool to some extent. Liverpool and Corinth were both coastal cities founded on trade. They were both cities famous for sport. Corinth held a kind of a, a, an equivalent to the ancient Olympics, which made it a real uh, cultural hub. Obviously, we know Liverpool is a very famous city for sport with two great teams, Everton and Everton Reserves. And then we've got uh, <laughs> Liverpool and Corinth were both cities in recovery. Uh, cities which were getting over some difficult times. Liverpool, we know, has had its challenges, still does have its challenges. Uh, also, multi-faith environments, areas where there was a heck of a lot of different cultures going on and clashing. Liverpool is a very, very culturally diverse city. Not as culturally diverse as some, but it is culturally diverse. And basically, cities with all kinds of challenges. So that was the idea, and Paul was writing to Corinth, and, and his letter to the Corinthian church is a letter in which he does address a lot of challenges. Now, some of those challenges, thankfully, are not challenges that we've been experiencing here. But nevertheless, the stuff in there has been really, really useful. It's been really helpful to teach through it. Just to recap what we've done so far, very briefly, when we looked at the first four chapters, that was really about Paul trying to bring the, the Corinthian church to living in the light of the cross. That the gospel is God's power, God's wisdom. It's not about man's wisdom because there was an, a tendency to start following men, to start following leaders and what they were saying instead of what the gospel said. When we looked at chapters 4 to 7, we looked at some of the things about living in restored relationships. We looked at issues of sex, of conflicts, of marriage, of social relationships, legal relationships. Um, there were even people in the Corinthian church suing each other, bringing lawsuits against each other. And Paul was saying, guys, come on, you're meant to be the family of God. We need to cut this out. We need to get on with each other. We need to live in relationships that reveal Jesus to the world. Chapters 8 to 11, we looked a bit more at how the Corinthian people interacted with the city around them, the, faith, the other faiths around them. How does it look to live as a Christian in ancient Corinth amongst all these other religions? How do we get it right? How do we actually help the people around us and show them the gospel? And then in chapters 12 to 14, some of, the, some of the most famous parts of 1 Corinthians, we looked at stuff about spiritual gifts, about orderly worship, about how to live and practice out spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongues. How to look, and we looked at that famous chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 about love. Yeah, So we looked at all that stuff. And then we had a little break, and now we're coming back in to chapter 15. We're near the end. There's only a couple of chapters left. And we wanted to save this bit for now, because we're going to be focusing on the resurrection. And obviously, everyone knows, as Chris was just saying about the four points, we're coming up to Easter time. It's a perfect time to look at this sort of thing. Um, now, actually, this was a bigger issue than you might think in the Corinthian church. Because actually... Some people in the Corinthian church were starting to, de to deny the resurrection. They were denying whether Jesus really rose from the dead. And they were denying whether resurrection was something that was going to happen to us as Christians. Now the Bible teaches us that there's going to be a new life. We are going to be raised to new life with Christ one day. But the Corinthians have started to just wander away from that. 
they were starting to talk about well, maybe there'll be a spiritual resurrection. You know, it, it's like you know, you know, be, becoming spiritually awake again. But we're still we're still going to die at the end of the day. Um, you know, but it's going to be something that's now, and then that, that'll be done with. But Paul uses this letter, and this part of the letter, to really firmly establish and re-establish the importance of the resurrection for Christianity. And over the next few weeks, we'll see him firstly make the case today about the historical significance and the importance of Jesus' resurrection. And then over the next couple of weeks, as Matt and Chris pick it up, they'll be looking at our resurrection. That's to come. So today we're going to focus on Jesus and his resurrection. I'm going to read the passage and then we'll pray and then we will go from there. So if you've got your Bibles, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're looking at verses 1 to 11. It's on the screen, but if you've got a Bible with you, you might want to turn to it. Okay. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Let me just pray for us before we we move into this passage. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Paul. Lord, I thank you for the incredible legacy he's left, Lord, of of writing and teaching for us to learn by and live by. I want to pray this morning that you open up this passage to us, Lord. I pray that you'll you'll bring us something new. pray that you'll use me, Lord. Uh, to just preach your word faithfully. I pray that we'll leave here inspired and changed and challenged by your gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so there's three things I really want to draw out of this passage today. Firstly, that the resurrection of Jesus was real. Secondly, that the resurrection of Jesus is vital to the gospel. And thirdly, that the resurrection of Jesus should change changes our lives. You might think they're three very obvious points, though I really need to be told that again. But actually, this was key. This was Paul saying to these guys, look, you've forgotten this. And actually, it's something that we can ignore sometimes as well. So firstly, the resurrection is real. I asked a question on Facebook recently. I asked for people to respond. I asked the question, what is the most important thing that anyone has ever told you. And I didn't know at the time, but I'd messed up my Facebook privacy settings and only about five people saw the question. I hardly got any responses. I did eventually get some, so thank you, you responded. I also looked some up on the internet to see what people say is the most important thing that they've ever been told. Okay, so here's some, some of the answers. I won't tell you who said what. One of them was, Jesus loves you. It's great, very holy answer, 10 points to that person. 
everyone needs to go to the toilet. <laughs> Think about it. Obviously, that was very important for that person. Another one. This was from my, my auntie, actually. She's not here. She won't mind me telling you. Um, this is something that my nan said to my auntie, her daughter. When anyone attempts to intimidate you, just remember that someone had to change their nappy once. <laughs> Don't eat yellow snow. Another one. You are pregnant. <laughs> that was the most important thing that someone said to someone. Pretty important. Nobody is better than you, and you are no better than anybody else. No one else knows what they're doing either. <laughs> Look both ways. Very important one. And never chase, this is quite this is an interesting one. Never chase love, affection, or attention. If it isn't freely given by another person, it isn't worth having. Hmm. Very profound. I don't think it's in the Bible, but it's quite profound. So there's some, there's some things that the world would say. Some people would say, you know, that's one of the most important things that anyone has ever told me. In this passage, Paul tells the Corinthians something that he has passed on to them, which as far as he is concerned, is of first importance. This is the most important thing I've told you. This is the most important thing I could tell anyone. And it's this. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul says... I pass this on to you as of first importance. This is what you need to know. This is what your whole faith is founded on. And actually, the first half of this, uh, the, the section in blue there, is actually believed to be one of the earliest Christian creeds. Anyone who's grown up in, in the Church of England or, or the Roman Catholic Church will know a little bit about creeds. It's like a statement of faith. It's something that is memorable, that you can repeat, and that you can say over and over again. That, that sets out a belief. And the reason that creeds are important is that back when, when Christianity was spreading, do you know what? There was, there was no social media. There was no print impression. You, could, you couldn't hear the good news about Jesus and WhatsApp your friend about it. You know, you had to have a way of communicating truth and oral tradition, repeating things verbally, was really, really important. And so people came up with memorable phrases, memorable creeds like this, so that it could be spread easily. You remember it, pass it on. Remember it, pass it on. And so that, that early part of that, that passage is actually believed to date from within two to five years of Jesus' actual death. It's one of the closest pieces of Scripture historically to the actual death of Jesus. It's one of the earliest pieces of, of early Christian writing. And Paul used that to look, this, this is basic, this is foundational, this is of first importance. And he uses that and says, look, this is what you believed. And then actually what he does is he adds to it. So the section in red there is Paul adding a bit extra to it, saying, look, this is important too. And actually all this stuff in red is about the resurrection. 
he's, he's embellishing and saying, look, do you know what? Not just this, uh, this creed as well, but here's some extra bits that really prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead. Not only did he appear to Cephas and then to the twelve, we also know he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the time. Some of them are still alive. They saw the risen Jesus. And then he appeared to James. That happened as well. And last of all, he appeared to me. I'm, I'm speaking to you as someone who, who G, the risen Jesus appeared to. Now we think he's probably talking about his Damascus Road experience where we know Jesus had ascended by then. But Paul had an, a, a vivid revelation of the risen Lord Jesus in that experience which changed his life. Paul is saying here, guys, this is vitally important. Jesus really died for your sins. He really was buried and he really, really, really did rise from the dead. You need to remember that. He's clearly concerned that the Corinthians are in no doubt. Guys, if you're starting to say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and that resurrection doesn't happen, you need to get back onto this because it does happen. It did happen. Jesus did it. It is an irremovable part of the gospel. It's irremovable from what they believed. And if we just focus on that, on, on the idea of the resurrection being real, actually, us as Christians today, 2,000 years on, we can look at the evidence, actually. It's, it's something that we can examine. If, if you're in any doubt, you can read into the history of this. There is solid historical proof that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. In fact, there are three main truths that are basically accepted by scholars, whatever their viewpoint on the resurrection is. These three things are basically just accepted. Number one, that an empty tomb was discovered by a group of women on that Sunday morning. That tomb was empty, and no body was ever found. No one was ever able to say, hang on, actually, that body was just stolen. Here it is, found it. The tomb in which Jesus was laid in was empty, indisputable. It was discovered by some women. And actually, that's important because at the time, if you wanted to really make a story stick, if you were going to make something up, you wouldn't have had women testifying to it. Actually, women's testimony at that time was seen as less reliable than a male's testimony. So if you're going to make this up, you probably wouldn't have said, oh, it was some women who found this, actually. You, you, you know, but that's what happened. It was women who discovered it. Women's testimony is much more reliable nowadays. It's always been reliable, thank you. Uh, you know, there were Roman guards guarding that tomb. And they weren't able to account for what happened. They weren't able to say, actually, yeah, we saw them pinch the body. No. No one could say what had happened to that body. There was an empty tomb, which is undeniable. Secondly, that a large group of disciples testified to real experiences with evidence that corroborated each other, that they, let, they met someone they believed to be the risen Jesus. That is undeniable. A whole group of people said, I met him. It wasn't just an empty tomb. I met the risen Lord Jesus. And the stories stack up. And, and as, as people have, have analyzed them and looked at them, they stack up, they add up. People met the risen Lord Jesus. It happened. And the third thing, that not only did they meet him, but then they preached about it. And they preached a resurrected Jesus. They preached a living Jesus. They preached that Jesus was alive, is alive. 
which is remarkable because at the point that he died, they were in such despondency. Peter had turned his back on Jesus the moment he was arrested. The disciples fled and scattered, worried that they'd be captured, worried that they'd be persecuted for what they were saying. They were in hiding. And then something changed. Something happened to make them go out and say, do you know what, he's alive. Why would you risk that? (laughs) What was in it for them other than uh, persecution and torture? They'd just seen their leader brutally murdered by a gang of people who didn't want him around. What value for them was there to put their hand up and say, well, he's still alive, actually, I still believe in him. Something must have happened (laughs) to make them, to motivate them to do that. And the clear answer is they met him and they knew they were certain that he was alive and so certain that they couldn't keep it keep it to themselves the resurrection of jesus we believe is a real historical event and we need to know that we need to know that and if you're not a christian here this morning i encourage you check it out there's there's good historical evidence out there there's books you can read there's a book by a guy called Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. Brilliant book. Really analytical. He's a journalist. He, he investigates it from all angles, finds out how likely it is, and, and comes to the conclusion, this happened. There's another book called Cold Case Christianity, written by a former murder detective who's used to investigating years-old cases that have gone flat with no solution. He investigates it from a, a police perspective. And again, comes to the conclusion, this happened. This is real. It's important to us that this happened. And Paul says, this is what we stand on. This is of first importance. Jesus died for your sins and he rose again. We've got to hold on to that. It's part and parcel of what we believe. So it's a warning to the Corinthians. Don't forget this. Don't start denying this happened because you'll get into all sorts of trouble if you do. And this is why, the second point, that the resurrection is vital to the gospel. It's vital. We know that Paul is keen to remind them the resurrection happened, but why? Actually, the curious thing about Christianity, even now, is that we often see more concerned with Jesus' death than we are with his resurrection. We talk much more about him dying and his sacrifice than we do about him beating death and raising raising from, from the dead. If you think about what we wear around our necks, some of us, it's a cross. It's the symbol that he died, not a symbol that says he rose. And of course his death is vital. Of course it is. Um, the Bible tells us that Jesus was murdered brutally to pay for the sins of mankind, the sins that we commit. Some, some Bible verses there, some key, key verses just set up why, why this needed to happen. That Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are therefore alienated from God. We've let him down. We've rebelled. We're in a position of not being able to have a relationship with him because we have sinned, every single one of us. And then later on in Romans, do you know what? Actually, the consequence of that, the wages of sin is death. The natural result of sin is death. That's the punishment. That's what sin results in. We're in a sticky situation. We've all sinned, and the result of sin is that we're going to die. But in John 3.16, do you know what? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the heart of the gospel. That's why we, we are so believing and so important that 
Jesus died. That's why we emphasize it. It is, it is our, our salvation, isn't it? it? Like If Jesus didn't die for our sins, we'd have a debt that we can't repay. If Jesus didn't die for our sins, we will be alienated from God. We can't repay that. We can't get right with God on our own. And his death, you know, we recently had a, a series looking at some Old Testament characters and how they point forward to Jesus. And there's all sorts of promises that, G, that the Son of God would die. All through, all, all through the Old Testament, all through Scripture, it's prophesied, it's, it's spoken of, and it, and it all happens. And Jesus did it. He was arrested, he was tried, he's sentenced to an unjust death. And he obediently goes through it. And then at that moment he dies. What does he cry out? He cries out, it is finished. And at that moment, we learn that the temple curtain in Jerusalem is torn from top to bottom. Symbolically, access to God is suddenly possible. That temple curtain which separated men and women from the inner sanctuary of the temple was suddenly ripped in two. That moment that Jesus died for our sins, the barrier is removed. The death of Jesus is of vital, vital, vital importance. Um, and it's right <laughs> that we spend so much time talking about it and so much time focusing on it in our, in our faith. But, do you know what? If the story had ended there, I think we'd have some serious questions. Because what, what marks Jesus out, what qualifies him as a man who lived a great life and died a sacrificial death, if it had just ended then, what would mark him out as any different from any other man who lived a great life and died a death? You know, I could say, I'm going I'm to give my life for you, but what would, what would make that so significant? I'm not, sin, I'm not sinless like Jesus was, but you know, I mean, there's, there's, like there's something missing. We've seen lots of influential people come and go from this earth leaving great stories, great quotes, great inspiration for us. How do we know that Jesus wasn't just another one of them? Maybe Jesus was just a really, really wise guy who did some amazing stuff, and that was the end of the story. Well, what marks Jesus out? What gives us the assurance that he's the real deal? He's the Messiah. He is the Holy One. Is that death was not the end for him. That God raised Jesus from the dead. That says in Romans 1, 4, through the spirit of holiness, he was appointed the son of God in power and by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus was always the son of God, but it was his resurrection that vindicates that fact, that makes it absolutely, puts the seal on it. Look, this is, this is it. He is the son of God. This is why he's different from anyone else. Without the resurrection, this, we're, we're short. It's the final proof, the most compelling evidence that Jesus is more than just a great man. It's God announcing to the world, this is the guy. This is my son. This is the one you need to follow. This is the one who's going to make it all right. Even death can't hold him. Even death can't hold him. I like this little phrase we just said at the moment Jesus died he cried out it is finished and when God raises Jesus from the dead it's like God saying amen <laughs> amen and Romans 4 25 says this Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins but he was raised to life 
for our justification. That is absolutely remarkable. He willingly went to the cross to pay for our sins. And then the fact that he rose from the dead, it justifies us. To be justified is to be declared just, to be declared right, to be, to be said, you know what, you've got no case to answer. You're innocent. You're free to go. When we know that we should be guilty. I, was, I don't know if anyone's seen it on the BBC recently, on the iPlayer. There's a, a very long, detailed documentary about O.J. Simpson. People remember the O.J. Simpson case back in the early 90s? It's about nine hours worth of documentary, but it is incredible. And I was thinking about O.J. Simpson. He, he murdered his wife and someone else. There's just, the evidence is just, you can't deny it. But he had this multi-million dollar legal team. And they famously, what they said, they they played the race card. He got off this murder by by basically playing on the relationship between the LA police and, and the black community. And somehow he escaped prison for this murder. And he was declared by the judge, you know, by the, the, the jury and the judge, not guilty, free to go. But for O.J. Simpson, he had to live with the fact, actually, he did it. <laughs> Life was never just going to go back to normal. He couldn't live as someone who was still, who was completely free. And in fact, he was hounded by the family of uh, the other person that he killed for, for the rest of his life, you know, continually hounded and, and being told, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, we're going to get you. They, they eventually got him um, tried in a civil case where he was found guilty and, fi- and he had to face like £33 million in, in um, compensation. And then, do you know what? The rest of his life has been a mess, actually. He didn't go free and just live a happy life. He fell into all sorts of stuff, and he's now actually locked up in prison because he, did, he committed an armed robbery. And actually, the judge in the armed robbery case was so frustrated by how he got off previously, she gave him an incredible sentence, like 33 years in jail for an armed robbery, which is unheard of. His freedom, his justification, wasn't real. He's still a guilty man. And he's ended up probably where he deserves to be. It's not the same for us. At all. When Jesus is raised from the dead and we are declared justified, that is it. No more. No one's coming to get us. No one's going to say, actually, only kidding. Into jail you go. We are free. The resurrection defeats the punishment that would have been ours. Death is defeated. Death is done with. There is no punishment. We are declared righteous. We are declared free. The The debt is paid, and that's that. The cross is where the debt is paid and our access to God is granted. And the resurrection is where having access to God, we are declared free. The curse of sin is broken because the death, the punishment, the wages of sin is defeated. As Jesus said to Martha before he died, I am the resurrection and the life. His resurrection was the fulfillment, the rubber stamp of his promise. I like this quote from from Tim Keller. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? 
the issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. It's vital. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he might not be worth following. But he did. (laughs) And if you accept that he did, and if you believe the historical evidence, which is solid, then you have to accept everything because he's trustworthy. He's truthful. He can be relied upon because he did what he said he would do. And he defeated something that couldn't be defeated. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then it sets him apart as the most incredible person who ever lived. And it validates everything that he ever did. It's not possible to look at his story and then say, oh, well, that's nice. (laughs) But that's it. If we believe that this happened, then the whole gospel is vindicated and validated. And we must take it seriously. Again, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're someone who's looking into this and thinking, hmm, this Christianity thing's a bit interesting, but I'm not really sure it's for me, then think about this. If the resurrection happened, then there's huge questions to answer. Huge questions to answer. Finally, the resurrection changes our lives. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is life-changing. It's not just an incredible moment in history that happened 2,000 years ago, and that's that. It is an ongoing source of life and celebration and joy to us. Again, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. I am the resurrection and the life. It gives us life. Jesus being risen from the dead is life-giving. If we worshipped a dead savior, then we'd be grateful for what he did, but we'd just be celebrating a memory. That's all, a memory. There's only so much joy that a memory can bring. Someone in the grave is powerless to have any real lasting or ongoing influence on our lives. This is a quote from a guy called Athanasius. He was a very wise theologian in the early, early centuries of the church. Dead men cannot take effective action. Their power of influence on others lasts only until the grave, only until they die. Deeds and actions that energize others belong only to the living. Well then, look at the facts in this case. The Savior is working mightily among men. Jesus is alive. He's doing things amongst us. Every day, he's invisibly persuading numbers of people all over the world to accept his faith and to be obedient to his teaching. Can anyone in face of this still doubt that he has risen and lives or rather that he himself is the life does a dead man prick the consciences of men we wouldn't be here today living out relationships with God if Jesus had died and stayed dead we just wouldn't he is alive and the Bible tells us although he's ascended to heaven What Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, the world will not see me, but you will see me because I live and you also will live. And he sends his Holy Spirit, his presence, ongoing presence in the world into our hearts. He does it at Pentecost and every Christian since. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. Jesus' ongoing, active, living presence. He's not dead. (laughs) 
He's alive and he's living in us, changing us, changing us day by day. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at what resurrection will look like for us. Our resurrection, which is to come. But here we see clearly that there's a way in which we experience something of resurrection life right here and right now in 21st century Liverpool. Or wherever it is you live. Saint Al- Someone's here from St. Helens. St. Helens is not quite part of Liverpool, but we'll give you it. The Spirit dwells in us. The power and presence of Jesus giving us peace, giving us, giving us hope, giving us the ability to relate to our Father. The Bible says that it's a Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, that says, Daddy, Papa. It's the Holy Spirit, it's Jesus living in us that allows that to happen. The resurrection of Jesus means that we live a living relationship with a living God. It's vital. Paul's saying, guys, don't, don't reject the resurrection. Don't lose sight of it because your whole faith just doesn't work without it. Jesus had to have risen from the dead. The evidence is there. There's a quote which I've not put up on the screen, unfortunately, but there's a quote from a guy called N.T. Wright, another theologian, and he just talks about us being what he calls resurrection people. That our, our calling and our, our, our role in the world is to live as people who live in the light of resurrection, who live in the light of a living God, who live in the light of Jesus having risen from the dead and then showing that to the world. Again, we couldn't do that talking about a dead man. It just wouldn't have the same effect. Oh, there was this great guy 2,000 years ago. I really believe in him. Um, come and believe in him with me. Well, what, what happens? Well, nothing much. He's, he's still dead, but he said some great stuff. It doesn't work. But as a resurrection, people say, look, do you know what? I've got a relationship with God. I know him. He's living in me. Yeah, he lived and died 2,000 years ago, but that wasn't the end. He lives in me, and you can know him too. You can live a life in which you know him too. You know the living God. You can have his peace. You can live in his hope. You can know that your future is secure because of him. It's a living relationship. That's what the power of the gospel is. We're not inviting someone into a dead relationship with a historical figure. We're inviting them to come and know the living, risen Jesus. And our whole outlook changes in the light of that. The whole look and feel of our faith is completely different because of that. Sin has no power because its wages are being paid. Death has no sting because it's been defeated. We can live a life of freedom and of hope, knowing that when we die, when we depart this earth, it's only the beginning of a new life that's going to last for all eternity. And there'll be more of that as we look at the rest of this, this chapter in Corinthians. And it's the power of that message which will inspire us, I hope to go about what we do out there in the world daily, to live lives of mission, to live lives of evangelism, to live lives of love for each other because we have this living Jesus dwelling inside of us through the Holy Spirit. I just want to close with one brief final thought. Something else that I picked up from this passage. Actually, I got this from a a book. I mentioned a book a couple of weeks ago, The Emotionally Healthy Church. This just highlights something about the impact of a living faith, of a faith that 
of, of knowing the gospel, not just in a, in a head way from 2,000 years ago, but knowing it in our hearts and letting it change us day by day. Paul, in that red bit there, in this passage, he says, I am the least of the apostles. Sounds like quite a humble thing to say, but actually, Paul was on a journey. Six years before he said this, in Galatians 2 verse 6, he talked about some of the other apostles. And he says, do you know what? Those who were held in high, high esteem, whatever they were, makes no difference to me. A little bit arrogant. <laughs> a little bit, you know, full of himself. Six years later, he's saying, do you know what? Actually, I'm, I'm the least of the apostles. I've, I've realized something about myself. I'm, I'm maybe a bit less puffed up now. Another five years later, in Ephesians, he says to the Ephesian church, do you know what? I'm not just the least of the apostles. I am the least of all of God's people. I'm the least, I'm the worst. Every Christian out there, I'm, I'm the least. I need more forgiveness than anyone. I need this gospel more than anyone. And then another five years later, he doesn't just say he's the worst of all Christians. He says, I am the worst of all sinners. <laughs> Do you see Paul went on a journey? This gospel of first importance he realized as he went on through his life, he needed it more and more and more and more because he realized just how broken and sinful he was, but just how forgiven and loved he was. So even though as he got more and more close to God and more holy, he realized how much he needed God more and more as well. Do you know what? I'm not just, I'm not just, a, you know, I'm not just the least of all apostles. I'm, I'm the worst of all. I need God so much. And that's what a living faith does for us. It doesn't start out saying, oh, I was sinful, now I'm forgiven, and I'm all right, and I'm, I'm just going to be awesome. It's an ongoing message of, do you know what? That, that death and resurrection of Jesus, I need that more and more every day because I am truly humbled by my own sin, and I need him more every day. And that's what a living faith does. just thought that was worth throwing in there. As we close then, The main thing just to take away is, do you know what? The resurrection is vital. Let's, let's go on emphasizing the death of Jesus, emphasizing the sacrifice that he made for us. But guys, let's live in the light and celebrate the light of a risen Savior. We don't worship a dead man. We don't worship a dead man. We worship a living God who loves us and is making us more like him every day. And as we live in that light, we can make the biggest difference to the world. Let's go out there to this city and to the world around us and proclaim a living God, a living Savior, that he's resurrected and he's beaten death for all of us.